how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Malachi Part 1. We shall shortly be studying Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, But before we do so, I just want to spend a few minutes talking about uh, an important question that arises from all the Old Testament prophets, and especially those we've been looking at. Uh, Most of the Old Testament prophets make predictions about the future of the nation Israel, the Jewish people. And yet you can go to many churches in this country and other countries and never hear about any future for God's people Israel. And there's a reason for that. And that is that there are different ways of treating these predictions about the future of Israel. Three different ways, in fact. And possibly the majority of uh, Protestant churches in the West uh, treat these predictions in a different way from the way I've taken them in uh, the introductions that I've given you to the Old Testament prophets. Things that are promised about the future of Jerusalem and the future of Israel and their place among the nations and so on, will these actually come true? Now the three positions are are these. First of all, one group of Bible interpreters say all these promises were conditional. They were always conditional on Israel being faithful and obedient to God, and that therefore, because they were not, all these predictions have been cancelled. They've fallen to the ground. They will never happen because the conditions attached to them were not fulfilled. Because they were conditional, in other words, these things can happen if you cooperate. And that having not cooperated, and in particular, having refused Jesus as their Messiah, the Jews have now forfeited their entire future, and all these predictions have fallen to the ground. They will never happen. They might have happened in the past, but in fact they never were fulfilled and never will be. That's one reason why some preachers never talk about Israel or its future. The second approach is that they were unconditional, that they will, it's not a case that they will happen if but they will happen whether or not that they are unconditional, that God has said, this is what I intend to do and I will do it. But even within this group of of those who take these predictions as absolutely certain to happen, there are two totally different ways of saying how they will happen. And probably the major way in which uh, churches say they will happen is to say that they are already happening to the church, and that these predictions are already being fulfilled in a symbolic or or spiritual way in the church. And uh, this is the view we call replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel, and therefore all the predictions made to Israel are now to be fulfilled in the church and are being fulfilled in the present, but in a spiritual way, not in a literal way so that uh, we are being brought to the heavenly Jerusalem, not to an earthly one, and, and the promises of fertility and blessing are seen in church growth and, and so on. It's intriguing, I can't help being a bit sarcastic here, because 
all the predictions of blessing are applied to the church, but all the predictions of cursing are quietly put in the waste paper basket. And this seems to me an awful way of treating the Bible. The old authorised versions, if you go through the prophet Isaiah, every blessing promised, it says blessing on the church, and every curse promised says curse on Israel. And <laughs> this seems to me a bad case of prejudice. But this would probably be the majority view in many churches, that the church has replaced Israel, God is finished with Israel altogether, we have to evangelise them like we evangelise any other nation, and that's all there is to it. They don't have any future as a people, but individual Jews who get converted, they have a future along with us Gentiles in the church. And this habit of calling the church the new Israel is very, very common. And yet the name Israel occurs 74 times in the New Testament and not once is it clearly applied to the church. In 73 of those it is clearly applied to the Jewish people. There's only one verse that could be a little ambiguous. Now that's not enough to apply the name Israel to the church. And I believe we shouldn't call the church the new Israel. The New Testament doesn't do it. Uh, but that's that second view so that it, it says these predictions made to Israel are now being fulfilled in the present, in the church, but in a spiritual way and therefore are fulfilled by Christ's first coming. The third and last view, and the view I've taken when I've been teaching the prophets to you, is that those predictions were unconditional, they will happen, but that they will happen literally to Israel as God said they would. Uh, and that therefore most of them are still future. The phrase, then all Israel will be saved, is taken by these people to mean the church will be complete. But here it's that Israel will be saved. And therefore the fulfilment of these predictions tends to focus on the second coming rather than the first coming of Christ. Now here are three uh, positions and uh, you must work your way through and come to your own conviction about these. But some of the decisive factors to me are particularly Paul's section in the letter to the Romans and particularly Romans chapter 11 where he says, has God finished with the Jews? Never. They may have rejected him but he hasn't rejected them. And the fact that uh, people like Malachi say, I hate divorce, God doesn't give up that easily on a people. He, he said to them again and again, you may break my covenant with you, but I will never break it. And the fact that Israel is still around, I believe to be proof that God keeps his word. They are still his chosen people, even in unbelief, because he chose them and he doesn't go back on his promises. Well now, I've given away my position, it's there and therefore the second coming seems to be a focus for much of the fulfilment of all this. I do find that these people have a very hazy view as to why Jesus is coming back. Uh, if you ask them, do you believe Jesus is coming back? They say, oh yes, then why? What do you think he's coming back to do? Take us to heaven but you'll already be there if you've died. Why does he have to come back and why does he have to bring all of us back? Why do we have to live on earth a second time? You do realise that, don't you? That when he comes, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep so that all Christians are going to live on earth, this earth, a second time. That's where we're going to get our new bodies. You don't need a new body in heaven, but you do need one to live here. So why are we all coming back and getting a new body down here? 
there's some great purpose to be fulfilled here. Long before there's a new heaven and a new earth, I believe the answer to the question, why has Jesus to come back? It is to reign over all the nations and then we'll shout, Hallelujah, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, that's the explanation. Now let's move on to the last book in the Old Testament and this happens to be the last video I make on the Bible. We've made 65 others and this is the last book that we're putting onto video. The background to Malachi is much the same as for Haggai and Zechariah, only worse. We have now gone a hundred years after the return from exile in Babylon and I'm afraid things are not good. Jerusalem is still deserted, people are still, people living in the country around them still don't want them back, the land is still largely barren and uncultivated, there are poor harvests and they're getting locust swarms, life is hard and precarious. The building is finished of the temple but it's such a small thing compared with Solomon's. It was finished in 520 but now we're way down the line. The walls which were broken have been built up by Nehemiah but people still prefer living out in the country and it's a job getting them back into town. They haven't built a palace because they don't have a king, they've got the royal line but the family of Zerubbabel is living in a poor house. They're not allowed to reign, the Persian governor is still their ruler, they're still just a little hill town and surrounding villages, they're nothing like the kingdom of David and so the people are disappointed and disillusioned and even despairing and they're beginning to ask, was it worth it? We've been back for a hundred years and where's this kingdom we were going to build? And so they were asking a question which I'm afraid people ask today, I can put it very simply, they were saying, why bother? And therefore they were becoming complacent, contented, they were settling down and this depression was having a devastating effect on their religious life for a start. They'd learned the lesson about idolatry in the exile, they never went again after other gods or change their religion but their religion had become a formality. They still went to the temple but it was largely out of tradition. It was ritual without reality, it was no longer a priority and they were now asking what was the minimum amount of time they need spend on religious activity and what's the minimum amount of money they could get away with, how small a coin they could put in the temple collection a tip instead of a gift and uh, I'm afraid the fact is that the more you put into your faith the more you get out of it and the less you put into your devotions the less you get out of them and the priests were like the people, I'm afraid by the time Malachi came along the priests were just doing it for a living. They were honestly not bothered about how many people came to attend the services as long as they just got through it and got their living. I'm afraid that's true also today and they were neglecting teaching the scripture, they were just keeping the services going in a casual and careless manner as if anything would do for God. No longer did they offer the best, they just kept it going. Not only had this an effect on their religious life but when you get that attitude to your religious life 
it begins to affect your moral life too. And sure enough, this was happening. When you say, why bother about God, it's not long before you say, why bother trying to be godly? Or to put it more simply, when one generation gets this way about God, why bother about God, the next generation will be saying, why be good? And we have lived to see that in our lifetime because we are now in the third and fourth generation away from church. I remember going into a factory canteen to speak to the men and a man got up and challenged me at the end. He said, I'm not boasting, but he said, you ask the other workers here who they go to when they're in trouble and who helps them. He said, they'll say me. And he said, I'm not boasting, I'm just telling you facts. Come to our street. And he said, you'll find, ask all my neighbours, who's the man who helps the most when they're in trouble? And he said, they'll say me. Now he said, I don't go to church, I don't read my Bible, I don't say my prayers. How do you explain that? And he was taking the old line of, I can be as good a Christian without going to church as you. He said, how do you explain that? He was saying, I don't bother about God, but I live a good life. And I had to ask the Holy Spirit to give me a word of knowledge. I said, your grandfather went to church, didn't he? Your grandfather prayed, read his Bible, didn't he? I said, yes. So I'll tell you something more. Your grandchildren won't be like you because if you don't pass God on, you can't pass goodness on. And you see, you can live for a couple or three generations on the faith of your forefathers, but then it runs out and goodness disappears when God disappears. This is what Malachi was finding. And so he's, the people were just saying, look after yourself, look after number one, make as much money as you can and give as little to God as you need. They'd got into trading and Jews are good at this. And even though they knew trading was wrong on the Sabbath, do you know what they did? They built out-of-town supermarkets just outside the gates <laughs> so they could open them on the Sabbath. Isn't it interesting? Consumerism took over. It had a devastating effect on family life. Why be faithful to God soon becomes why be faithful to your wife. And so, especially when your wife gets older and loses her sex appeal, why not trade her in for a later model? which is what they were doing. And it's all happening again. Furthermore, they were rather short of women because most of those who had come back from Babylon were men. And in the shortage of women, they said, well, nothing wrong with marrying outside of the people of God. Solomon did. Why shouldn't we? And so not only were they divorcing and remarrying, but they were remarrying non-Jewish women against the law of God. And so I'm afraid the city of Jerusalem was being filled with abandoned wives and there were no state welfare then. They had a pretty rough time, widows and orphans and abandoned wives. Now when times are bad, you've got to find someone to blame, haven't you? You've got to find a scapegoat. Now we've all, all got one, we've got the government and they are honestly a very convenient scapegoat. We talk about them as if they've got pots of money and they have not a penny. They've only got what they take from us. And we think we've got limitless resources and we blame the government for not spending money on this, that and the other as if they have money to spend. They don't. We want them to reduce taxes but we want them to spend more. And it's crazy but they make a good scapegoat and every four years we can kick them out. But of course they hadn't got a government to blame but they did have a God to blame.
And that's precisely what they did. And they said, God's not bothered about it, us, so we're not bothered about him. It sounded very impressive. They said, God has stopped loving us, so we've just stopped loving him. They said, we can't believe in a God of love. Look at the situation we're in. We're having to, to, we're having to look after ourselves. He's abandoned us, so we might as well just look after number one. Now, their criticism of God had two sides to it. On the one hand, they said, God doesn't reward good living. And on the other side, he doesn't punish bad living. So why bother? Now, this seems so real and relevant, doesn't it? There's so many people who think and talk like this, or if they don't talk like it, they live like it. They don't bother about God because they says he doesn't bother about us, how we live. And God seemed to be doing neither. So why bother to keep his laws? What's wrong with bending his laws? Now Malachi had to deal with this situation and he came. His whole prophecy is in prose, not poetry. And that to me is a very serious indication of something. It indicates that God has lost his feelings for his people. And that's precisely what had happened. God had lost his feelings for his people and he wasn't going to talk to them again for another 400 years. And this was his last word. It was a very cool word. It's not a warm word. It's not a heart word. It's a head word. It's cool. It's argument. And Malachi is unusual in that uh, he's the one prophet uh, who had arguments with people and he obviously spoke this word and was heckled because he reports the heckling. They were offended by his preaching because his basic message was, you started all this. It was not God who stopped being bothered about you. You did it first, much the same as Haggai. He says, you stopped bothering about God and that's why he's not bothered about you. And that is how God responds to a human situation. Romans 1 again, Paul says, men gave God up so God gave men up. That's fair, isn't it? And when a nation gives God up, he gives them up. Do you know that Britain is the second most godless nation in the entire world? Reader's Digest did a survey of faith, general faith in God or gods around the world. They found that Japan was the most godless and the least religious and that Britain was second. They make you proud to be British. We live in the second most godless nation in the world. People aren't bothered, but when people are not bothered about him, I'm afraid he doesn't bother about us. And look what is the result. That's when violence takes over. That's when selfishness and pride take over. Well, he said, you were the first to stop loving. You were the first to stop caring. You were the first to stop bothering. He's only responding in kind to you. You lost interest in him and now he's tired of you. And your lack of real love for him is the basic problem. And they didn't believe him. They were terribly offended. There were repeated protests of innocence from the congregation. It's not as bad as you make out. They felt insulted and offended. They were indignant and they argued. And they said, how, how, how did we stop caring for God? Spell it out. You know, it's much the same in, in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Jesus' teaching. 
when he said, I was in prison and you didn't visit me, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. He said, how? We never saw you in prison. We never saw you hungry. Oh, yes, you did, he said, because I live in my brethren. When you do it to my brothers, you're doing it to me. And here's much the same reply. How? How did we not bother with God? How did we stop loving him? How did we stop caring? And he takes them through it step by step. And his whole prophecy is an argument with them to show them how they did it, how they stopped caring about God and therefore caused him to stop caring about them. Well, that's the background and uh, Malachi has some unique features, five very unusual features, uh, which I'll just mention before we go through it in detail in the next talk. But here is the five major features which make Malachi quite unique. First, there are more God words in Malachi than in any other of the minor prophets. There are 47 out of 55 verses are the direct words of God. That's a very high proportion, 85% are God's own words and that's among the highest proportion in any prophetic book. The second is that this prophecy is anonymous. I know you thought Malachi was his name, it's not a name, it's the word messenger, that's all. Could have been his name, but it's never known as a name anywhere else in the, in the Old Testament, but it's frequently used. In fact, within this book, he uses the word messenger of prophets, of priests, and of kings. So he's just an anonymous messenger, a nobody, bringing God's last word to his people Israel. And then the third feature is this dialogue. It, it takes the form of sharp exchanges between prophet and people. He was heckled twelve times, it says, but you say, but you say. They argued twelve times. They kept interrupting us and said, that's not true. That's exaggeration. You're making us out to be worse than we are. And he had to deal with every objection, which he did very effectively. The fourth feature I've already mentioned, it's prose, not poetry, because God's feelings have run out, dried up. God feels drained. He feels exhausted with his people and therefore he won't talk to them for another 400 years. You need to see God's heart here. Wouldn't you be fed up if having taken them to exile and brought them home, they now can't be bothered about God? And the fifth feature is, of course, that this is God's last word. Perhaps the Christian order of the books in the Old Testament is right after all because this was God's last word, and the last word is curse. And to this day, whenever the Jews read Malachi in the synagogue, they do read the last verse, lest he smite the land with a curse. And then they go back and read the verse 5 again, so they don't end with the word curse. Isn't that interesting? They deliberately won't end God's last word where he ended it, and they read the previous verse a second time, just to end on a happier note. You go to the synagogue and when they read Malachi, that's what you'll find. So here we are dealing with God's last word to his people Israel for 400 years. Well now, as we look at the outline itself, we'll uh, take just the first little bit. He announced that God had loved Jacob and hated Esau. How many of the deepest divisions today go right back into history? 
the whole Arab-Israeli conflict goes back to Ishmael and Isaac. And here we have a conflict that goes right back to Jacob and Esau, those twins. Uh, but having said that, I want you to know that in the Bible, loved and hated do not mean what we mean by these words and therefore we get a wrong impression. To love someone is to care for them and seek their highest good, it's not to feel good about them. And to hate someone in Bible language is not to care for someone and not to seek their good. And when Jesus said, you're not worthy to follow me if you don't hate your father and mother, he wasn't meaning that you've got to have bitterness and resentment towards them. He's meaning you to care for me more than them. Now that's rather important, otherwise it can be misunderstood. Furthermore, God is not just talking about way back in the past Jacob and Esau, he's really talking about the two nations, Israel and Edom. And he's reminding them that over the previous hundred years he has done nothing but good for Israel and he has punished Edom. That's what he's really talking about, not the distant past, but the recent past. And the recent past is this, when the Babylonians came to take the Jews away and to destroy Jerusalem, the Edomites, descendants of Esau, living over the Jordan on the hills the other side, were thrilled to bits and they joined in. And they said, hallelujah, they have finished. And they really came and they they took the babies of the Jews by the heels and they bashed their brains out against the Jerusalem wall. This was the Edomites taking advantage of the Babylonian invasion. It's all there. And in exile they, have, they wrote a song, it's a terrible song. It, it goes something like this, I can't just quote the exact words because I want to give you the gist of it. They, we hung our harps in the willow trees. How could we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth and my hand forget its cunning if I forget thee, O Jerusalem. You know the psalm. And it ends, happy shall he be who dashes your babies against the stones. Edom. And you get a picture there of what happened it wasn't just that the Babylonians took them, Edom joined in. The descendants of Esau came against the descendants of Jacob. Since then, God has punished Edom. In a few months' time, some of us will be in Petra. That's where Edom lived. It's now an empty ruin. That was Mount Seir. That's where the descendants of Esau lived. And God threw them out of there by bringing the Arabs to throw them out and they had to go and live in the Negev desert where there was no crops and they had to scratch a living as virtual Bedouins travelling Edomites. And so the name of the Negev, that uh, desert in the Sinai Peninsula, became Edom. And they had to scratch a living as wanderers in the desert of Sinai. That's where Edomia, the Edomites, lived after they were thrown out of the magnificent town of Petra where they'd lived. God says, Esau, I've hated, I've done that to them for what they did to you. Remember that, I've loved you and I haven't cared for them. And it was from the Edomites that King Herod came. Herod, a descendant of Esau, managed to persuade the Romans to sell him the kingdom of Israel and he was king when Jesus was born.
and Edomite. See, the unfolding history is intriguing, isn't it? Now, what Malachi is saying is just think about your survival. Look what's happened to Edom for what they did to you. And look what I've done for you. I've loved you. I've hated them. You should be grateful to me. In other words, when you're complaining about God, just think about what he's done to other people and think about what he's done to you and you'll be jolly grateful. It's on that basis that he then begins to deal with the accusations that they've stopped bothering about God. And we'll look at that in the next talk. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.